we're driving down the highway. You know what that means. It's time for another episode of Superhero Ethics on the Road. I'm Matthew Westfox, I'm one of your hosts. I'm Jacob Malici, I also am on this show. And he is driving the car. Welcome, Jacob. And also joining us today is our friend and fellow magic judge, and a person who brought to us a really great uh, topic that we're excited to uh, talk about today. Uh, that's Morgan Wentworth. Morgan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Well, as great as we can be when we started driving at early in the morning. <laughs> we are currently stuck in one-lane traffic on a highway, so we'll have lots of time to discuss this with you folks. Um, and today we're going to be talking about a topic that we've kind of touched on in quite a lot of quite a lot of different episodes, because frankly it comes up in a lot of the media we watch. But we thought it would be a really good topic for a general discussion today, which is that of relationships in media with superheroes and, and sci-fi and things like that. Often, when we are looking at a specific property, a movie or a TV show or a book, we spend a good deal of time talking about the romantic relationships that the characters get into. What are the issues involved? Especially because it's become almost a trope at this I, I would say a full-on trope at this point of there being certain decisions that our hero has to make to either lie to their romantic partner to protect a secret identity or have to try to keep that partner safe. There's so many things that come up, or all, all the questions about what happens when, when bad things happen to those romantic partners as a plot point. There's a lot here to discuss. So, um, And Morgan, I know you were the one who really brought this topic to our attention. What is it about this topic that really got you and made you think this would be a fun one to talk about? I think that narratives centering around relationships can be interesting, but a lot of the time the relationship itself is sacrificed for plot points and the hero's arc, uh, and the, the love interest gets left at the wayside a lot of the time. Yeah. I think it, it, it very often, and we're going to talk both about the ethics of the sort of romantic decisions that our characters make, but also we're going to, in the second half of the show, talk on a more meta level about the ethics of the writers and the producers, and sort of why are these different topics brought into uh, superhero and, and related media so often, and, and how is that done in good or bad ways? Um, Jacob, what about you? What, what's kind of your initial take on this topic? So I also enjoy when uh, our characters get a more fully-fledged life and get to have relationships and, and have romance. Um, however, often I... I don't like how it is. There are often times where it definitely feels injected because they feel the need to have it rather than it seeming to develop organically. Uh, and then that also comes with a giant pile of baggage for how they choose to use it to advance the story rather than using it as a way to add another dimension to the characters we already have. Yeah. I think that's a very good point. I think certainly, um, like I said, in that second half we'll get into... You know, there's, there's been a lot of theories, and also some, some of this has been directly confirmed by statements from folks in Hollywood about that, you know, for a long time, there's been, a, been a, an idea of men go to see movies for action and fight scenes and explosions, and women go to see movies for love stories. Um, and there's, there's obviously eight million things wrong with that kind of thinking, but I think we can talk about the way that thinking sometimes really pretty clearly comes out in those shows we watch and the movies we watch. Well, let's actually start by talking about um, inside the show, like before getting meta. Let's talk about the romantic decisions themselves. Um, what do you think are the? What are some of the questions that come up when a hero starts dating, and what are some of the problems that can come up? 
Well, I think one of the big issues that a hero has when they start dating is they are taking someone into their very personal life and it could be like personal on a surface level where they get to know their likes, dislikes, and interests, or it could be personal on a much deeper level where they learn that their parents were murdered in front of them as a child and that's why they spend the nights running around in skin-tight leather. Just as an example. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a good point, especially because what we see so often especially with Batman, as you just referenced, but with a lot of the characters, is when you have a hero who basically has, like, two identities, you know, Batman and Bruce Wayne, or Daredevil and Matt Murdock, the convention almost always is that the hero is only going to show their love interest one of those two. And I think, for me, I often get very uncomfortable watching sometimes what we're told is being problematic, but sometimes we are sold this as what a romantic love story, when what our hero is doing is being fundamentally dishonest to the, the person they're in theory falling in love with. Absolutely. And, and to add to that, so often the, the bill of goods, as it were, that we're sold here is that the hero is hiding that information to protect the person that they're, they're connected with, right? Right. But when you think about it, it doesn't really work. It's not what puts that person in danger isn't their knowledge of the fact that you are this other hero it's or this hero that does these other things it's the fact that you have that connection and are engaged with elements that will that will take advantage of that connection right yeah I think that's a very good point especially because I mean I think that that's kind of one of the first main problems we can identify is when a character is, is claiming that there's like a righteousness in what they're doing because they're doing this for the good of the other person, either to protect them or to, so that they are protected from emotional fear or that they wouldn't understand, like, what, 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 is the, what do you think that does to a character when what, a fundamental part of what they're claiming is this romantic, loving relationship is denying the agency of the, care, of the person they're, they're in love with? Yeah, I think that it shows this fundamental distrust of the decision-making capacity of the other person because if I knew that I was dating someone who you know the the biggest super villain in the city was after I would probably stay away from like vans and parking garages and places where I could be kidnapped versus having no clue that my rich boyfriend had people after him I would just go about my day without taking any extra precautions yeah Absolutely. It, it denies the other person not only the, the full truth behind who they're connected with, so like it's all aspects of themselves that they're hiding, that creates sort of a fundamentally dishonest relationship, and absolutely, to your point, takes away their agency in making informed decisions. It could also, like, not, and the, my first statement was assuming that I'd still want to be with this person. Right, right. Like, I have some serious problems with the way that superheroes in media function sometimes with regards to their treatment of civilians and public property, or even private property, where if I was dating someone who I found out was a superhero who had destroyed half a city block, kind of like without batting an eyelash two weeks earlier, I might second guess my relationship with that person. Yeah. I mean, that's a very good point. Like, I think in, in consent culture, one thing that gets talked about a lot is, you know, 
asking someone to make a decision that you have not given them a fully, like, all the relevant information for, then they're not actually giving full informed consent. And I think, Morgan, you're making a great point. Like, it, agreeing to, to date Batman, or agreeing to date Bruce Wayne without knowing he's Batman, you, you're, that, there's no consent involved there. Um, another thing I think this brings up for me is, and, and I find this both ethically problematic, but also just frustrating as a storytelling device, because it never works. It seems like there's so much hubris involved here, because the conceit is almost always that the character believes that they can actually keep this secret, that they can keep the person safe, that they can keep the person from knowing, they can keep the villain from ever figuring it out. And that I I can't think of a single show or movie where that's true. Well, and that, oh, go ahead. that was a big like plot point in one of the Batman movies where he literally had to choose between saving Gotham and saving his girlfriend. It wasn't even saving his girlfriend, right? It was saving somebody who he was interested in versus saving two things. They were talking about the same movie, yes. right? Dark Knight. Versus yeah. saving Harvey Dent. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Because yeah. Harvey Dent was dating the person he was interested in, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's another little loop that was thrown in here. But, yeah, yeah he, couldn't, he couldn't even save the person that he was interested in without putting somebody else in danger. Right. Which isn't a great trade-off. And that's something that we've talked about on other episodes of what responsibility does a hero have in terms of, you know, like if you're, uh, if a fireman is in a situation where a person that they emotionally care about is in one room and five other people are in another room, we expect them as a trained professional, like we, we, we hate to have everyone ever make that choice, but, but to rescue more people. Um, and, and I think this is something that comes up with the idea of accountability, is what is a hero's accountability to the people they have direct personal relationships to versus the, if they're being given credit for saving kind of the general public, the general public of some sort. Right. Um, and another, another kind of concept now I, I want to bring up, because I think it's so related to all of this, um, and we've touched on it, but it's, it, I don't want to specifically name it, is the idea of gaslighting. Um, for, for any listeners who don't know, I think most probably do, but the, the term gaslighting refers to basically like continuing to lie to someone in a way that makes them kind of doubt their own idea of reality. And like the example of this that comes up all the time is when the person that our hero is, has a relationship with is starting to figure it out. And then all of a sudden there's like, you know, you're not, and they're starting to say, wait, why are you going out at night all the time? Why are you coming home bruised all the time? And our heroes are just telling them horrible lies that that, that often can, can make them seem really question reality. Um, have you ever seen the first season of Flash? No. Okay. It is a, I, I won't spoil much, but it is a, uh, and a Jess Plummer, who's been a guest on our show and I know is a, a big fan, um, she actually brought this up as a perfect example. That they spend the entire first season having three different people completely gaslight one of the major characters because she's figuring out who the Flash is, and they're just doing everything they can to lie to her in ways that are pretty clearly kind of psychologically harmful to her. And it doesn't even need to be a horrible lie. You can just say, oh no, I wasn't there, you must have been seeing things, 
enough times. Yeah. And that'll 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 start making someone question their own sanity as much as like flat out lying about something else. Absolutely, it's doubling down on not being upfront and honest rather right. than taking that moment as a okay, it's time to. Come clean. I've been hiding this for a while, but yeah, that was actually me. Uh, sorry. Right. And I like, I think that even though the stated motivation for continuing to lie is the protection of the character, that this could also be a way to avoid the fallout of finding out that the relationship built on trust and mutual respect no longer has either of those things. Yeah. Like, you can paint it as nobly as you want, but in real life, people continue to lie and gaslight their partners so that they don't have to deal with their partners finding out that they are doing a bad thing. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons why why these things bother me so much is so often these characters, I mean... The reason why we go see hero stories, at least we used to, this is in the, in the age of Netflix, maybe not so much, but it's the idea that these are people are somewhat role models, you know, that these are supposed to be kind of paragons of virtue that folks can look up to. And I think we're, we're pretty far away from that these days, but when one of the most dominant forms of movie on uh, media is just constantly reinforcing these awful romantic ideas, to me that, that's a real problem. Um, one related example I wanted to bring up, because um, it ties into Morgan, what you were saying about how it's not all, it doesn't have to be a big lie, it's just a repeat, is to me when it's simply about where were you. Um, and there's one show that I want to bring up, it's, it's outside of our, it's sort of outside of our, our, what we often talk about, but I think it's very much a comic book style superhero show, and that's Chuck, um, which I think neither of you have seen, correct? I have seen it, but okay. a while ago. And again, I won't spoil anything. Uh, Jay Garcia, I hope you watch it at some point, because I think it'd be great to talk about it. You would really enjoy it. But one of the conceits is that our character frequently has to go away on missions at the last minute. And so the character has a very important person in their life who is constantly trying to plan these important events with them, only to have the character not show up. And in this case, the, char- the, 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 the other character from our hero... It's not that they ever start to suspect that the, the other person is a, a hero or something. They just start to seriously doubt whether our hero actually has feelings for them or just is just you know is taking them for granted. And that emotional pain, I think, is another. It's another kind of gaslighting, and it's another kind of really manipulating someone else's emotions. Because it, it, at that point, it becomes hard. It becomes hard for me to imagine that you still think your presence in their life is a good thing. And I don't think it's as much a manipulation so much as it is just obliviousness to what is going on in the relationship. Right. Skipping so many important things to a person should result in a serious conversation about what is going on. And even if it, even if you still need to skip stuff, you should be making up for it in other areas of the relationship. So, like, in that case, it might not even just be gaslighting, it's just being really bad at being in this relationship. Yeah. 
So I think I think kind of related to that, we've talked a lot about one of the topics we want to get into, which is secret relate like the secrecy and identity and stuff. Um, moving on a bit, what do you think are if you're a hero and you're looking to get on Tinder or OkCupid, okay um, do you think you're going to have better luck ethically and also just for the health of the relationship by trying to date a fellow super or by looking to um, trying to date a, a civilian? It's definitely the fellow super where I'd be more comfortable dating if I also had superpowers. I, I think is there because we have some overlap in our occupational hazards. <laughs> I think there's a lot more that I share, a lot more that I have in common with a fellow super that, that it seems like that's going to be better and also eliminates a lot of the things that I... Basically takes away opportunities for me to make these, these mistakes that we're talking about. Because like, I don't have the opportunity really to... Like, it doesn't make sense to be dishonest with somebody who I know is already doing all this stuff, too. Like, when I'm going to say, oh, well, I know that you're going out and, and punching robbers in the face, but I'm not going to let you know that I'm doing that to protect you from hazards you're already exposed to. Nope, I can't. That logic doesn't work anymore. The only time I, that logic works is if they're on different sides. Sure, if I'm dating a villain and I'm a hero or vice versa. Yes. Um, but even then, you know, maybe there's there's a an opportunity to try to work out some differences and find some common ground. That's true. Like if Magneto started dating, I don't know, somebody in his actual age bracket. Professor X. Yeah, if Magneto started dating Professor X, right? Uh, maybe they already talk with each other plenty, but maybe that could help them explore, you know, the different parts of their ideologies that uh, that they actually can, can share and some, come to some kind of consensus on. And yeah. you definitely get that. I don't know if they've ever actually outright dated on film, though probably they have in comics, but certainly just the flirtation between Batman and Catwoman often brings that up, both in that there is... They both kind of toy with each other and kind of poke at the way in which they both exist kind of in a gray... Like, I think Batman has a lot more is a lot closer to Catwoman than he is to, say, Commissioner Gordon, for example. And probably the same crusade of a Catwoman to Batman versus, like, the Joker. And I think some of the best stories involving the two of them are where they are kind of poking at each other in their flirtation. And maybe they're teaming up to work together, or maybe they're just kind of, like, reminding each other that, like, the, the line between, like, cop and criminal, or, like, justice and injustice, is a lot grayer and a lot blurrier than either one of them think. So there you have it, folks. There's no reason to lie to your partner ever. <laughs> uh, one of the analogies that I would use to this, like, to discuss superheroes dating other superheroes versus dating civilians is dating while you are in college. Mm. If you have ever tried to date someone who is not in college while you were in college, it gets very difficult, not just because of the logistical issues of working around your classes and your homework, which you should definitely be prioritizing over your love life in college, probably. And I definitely, <laughs> definitely did. Um, but you just have a whole different life lifestyle, as well as a whole different set of surroundings. 
So it, it can be very difficult to communicate your experiences with another person because they are cur not currently going through similar things or like in a similar landscape. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And actually, I, I, when you started about college, I thought you were going to go in a different direction. Uh, and I think both have a lot of relevance. Because everything, everything you said about the differences in life experience is so true. But I, I, what I thought you were going to go was talking about like a professor dating a student. Yes. Because I think the other problem there is, and actually, um, um, I keep referencing things you guys haven't seen and being incredibly vague. <laughs> but in, um, in the television show The Boys... That is actually a plot point that is a little bit explored directly is what is the power imbalance between a super and a civilian? Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, that kind of like a professor to a student or like a, you know, a government official to, to someone who kind of works under them, that there's just such a vast indifference between the kind of risks taken and the kind of experiences had um, that it seems to have some real problems. Now, we're spending an awful lot of time talking about everything that can go wrong. And I think a lot of romance in superhero and geek media is pretty bad. Are there some good examples folks can think of? Uh, and maybe it is mostly super, super. But, but what, are, what are positive examples we think we've seen of heroes dating each other? Um, this one, I feel like, is a little bit more implicit than explicit. But I really like the relationship between Black Widow and the Hulk. Because I think that their shared experience as being superheroes allows them to be much more supportive of them, of each other, when they're going through emotional turmoil related to their position in society. Right. I, I thought to that, but Jake, did you, did you look like you wanted to jump in? I'm, no, I, I'm so like, you say that, and I'm like, I know, because I actually, I, I, like, we talked about uh, Black Widow and the Hulk uh, previously on this podcast and had different takes on that relationship or I, I happen to agree with Morgan. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of another example because most often any relationship in in superhero media or or otherwise yeah. is eventually used to advance the story in such a way that we sabotage the relationship. I really like the relationship between I didn't want to comment more on Black Widow and the Hulk, but I thought you were going to comment. No, 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 yeah. no you, you, you were asking if we could think of examples. So yeah. I, I like the relationship between uh, Winifred and Gunn in, in uh, Angel. Mm. Uh, I actually thought that relationship was incredibly healthy, and the thing, like, the, what broke it was Winifred getting possessed by a, uh evil deity, and I still hate that, but... yeah. That's at least it wasn't like the relationship got sabotaged in some way because somebody was being dishonest. Well, that was the plot point Morgan was just talking about in terms of where, and part of this I think is because breaking up a relationship is such an easy plot point, and part of it's because I think there's this very unfortunate thing that Hollywood has come to believe, and it's somewhat true, but I think it also does not have to be, that that people don't want to see how that healthy relationship on television is boring or in a movie is boring. Right. Um, I, I just want to push back a little bit on the Hulk and Black Widow because I think in the first Avengers movie, I 100% agree with you, and for a lot of the early part of the second Avengers movie, Age of Ultron, I really agree with you. Um, the direction that it takes, and part of this is the way the writers write the Black Widow character in terms of um, you know, her experience of infertility, being kind of what defines her as monstrous, um, I had real problems with. But also just the way that they relate to each other, especially in terms of Black Widow um, 
kind of basically forcing the, using her romantic the trust that Hulk that Bruce Banner has for her to force him to become the Hulk when he doesn't want to be. Um, to me, I thought that was really problematic and a really like unhealthy thing to do in a relationship. But I guess also it, it is believable as the kind of thing that I could see a relationship like that going to. Um, but I just kind of wanted to name that if we talk about like that particular relationship. So going back to the like Buffy the Vampire Slayer universe examples, how do we feel about Xander and Anya? I really like Xander and Anya. I think that relationship works really well, and I hate it when they decided that it needed to go away, too. Uh, because they did it in such a... I want to get into it, it's a little too specific, but, like, the sabotaging of that relationship uh, in the narrative was 100%... They, uh, it felt to me 100% like they think people are bored, they're still going to make Xander more of an idiot than he normally is. <laughs> Yeah, and I was really sad about that because I really liked the way that Xander and Anya made it work. Because Anya had respect for Xander, which he had never really gotten in the whole show. Yep. So, like... He never really deserved it. That's not... That's beside the point. When he was a teenage boy, he deserved about as much respect as I did when I was a teenage boy, which, okay, wasn't a lot. But, like... He, he grew. He developed. He, he had an arc, right? By the time that they're that, by the time the relationship had matured, right? Mm-hmm. They have a bunch of worries and concerns they're not voicing. They sing a whole song about yeah. it, uh, which I love. Uh, and but like, there is a way to tell that story that is very healthy and can show that people can work through stuff like that rather than. In my opinion, taking the easy story shape of ending the relationship because nobody can be happy because happy isn't interesting. I think that I, 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 that that point makes a lot of sense to me. I think I I have come to think of Xander to me holds a very similar place in fiction as Ron Weasley does. Yes. As a character who I really enjoyed when I first watched it or read it and kind of related to in some ways. And then came to be able to look back on and realize just how horribly he was treating the people around him, and that maybe this actually wasn't the kind of good relationship that I thought it was. I think Ron Weasley never has that moment of real growth and change. You're right, though. I think I, like I think Xander, the first three seasons, the way Xander treats Willow, is absolutely awful, and that's kind of part of my no respect comment. But I, I do think you're right that the particular way Anya, especially the Anya, like literally takes no shit from him and and calls him out all the time that there is a lot of growth in that relationship and so I can understand like, like yeah that, that kind of be a much more positive way of seeing it whereas Ron is uh, Ron doesn't grow in that way and is uh, should also not be allowed near women I think uh, <laughs> for many reasons right yeah there's actually an interesting YouTube video about Ron Weasley and the Ron problem but I'm not going to go into that because that's a little bit out of the scope I just like the, um, I like to, I wanted to present Xander and Anya as uh, an example of a positive relationship between someone with powers and someone without powers. Right. And, and let me ask you this, because I don't want to reduce it to a simple thing, but in terms of the power dynamic at work, I think part of why I'm more okay with that is that in that case, it's the woman who has the powers. Because it's instead of it being like, 
the already power imbalance that can exist between man and woman, men and women. Uh, um, here we have the power dynamic is flipping that. Yeah. Um, does that make it feel a little better for you guys? I I think so, and I think it would be really weird if it was like Willow and some weird demon guy, like. Well, Willow also is powered towards the end of the show, that's true. right? That's so, true. Like so it, free, very witchy Willow. Right, right. I think that would have been really weird, and right. I don't think it, I don't think, especially with Willow's character, there would have been as much of an opportunity for the power imbalance to be corrected by other elements of the relationship. And if you recall, in Buffy, they explored uh, free witchy Willow with a demon as a cautionary tale episode when it's oh, the yeah. robot demon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've watched it way too many times. So. I, I love Buffy. I have not seen as much of Angel as Jacob or you have. Morgan, I'm not sure for you. Does Angel ever have relationships with civilian women? So, Angel's... Angel is a huge bag of problematic cats, right? Yes. Because he's got this stupid thing that says he can't, like, have relationships because he gets evil. Because it's, it was this really, really anvily story uh, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer about not having sex and not being particularly sex positive, I think, yeah. which was terrible. Um, but then they had, they had this story baggage they had to go with where Angel can't be happy. He can't be too happy or he loses his soul, which is messed up. Um, so, no. He doesn't really ever end up having a relationship um, that is healthy, right? Because he can't. Right. Because that's written into the narrative that he can't. Um, there is one point where he might be getting into a relationship with somebody and they immediately throw it in the garbage. Yeah. Does Cordelia have any relationships with, like, monsters? Uh, Cord- well, Cordelia early on in the show technically becomes powered herself when she gets the, oh, the when she gets the oracle powers yeah. from um oh hashtag never forget this guy. Uh but yeah. Uh, from the the character who had them in the first couple of episodes of season one. But she ends up in multiple different relationships, uh some of which are with people who are but like they're one off episodes, right? She doesn't have a long term relationship that I can recall with a member of the crew, with a member of the hero crew that is themselves powered. Okay. Right. Um, and if, they, if she does, that might have happened, and I just forgot about it because it wasn't important enough to me okay. to be invested. Now, okay. one thing I, I wanted to uh, interject to say, uh, there's a point actually that Morgan had made beforehand that we, we dove in. Uh, just to say as a disclaimer, um, we're talking today about relationships. We're talking primarily so far about... Um, uh, different gender relationships. Um, there's obviously a wide range of, and we're going to talk somewhat about how queer relationships are treated in some of these shows, but I think it's important to name for our experiences where we are each sitting. Um, uh, I think all three of us, if I'm correct, identify as, as um, well, I, I will identify for myself that I am very, very close to cis, very close to straight, with some wiggle room on both, but, but certainly I cannot claim to speak for experiences outside of those two. Um, um, and I think that that's, in general, I think we all just kind of want to be aware of where we are sitting in the show. And that there's obviously a lot of voices that are important to discussions about relationships that are not being heard on this. Uh, and then I will really encourage folks to also seek out where people with different perspectives um, 
what they have to say on these things, because we hope we're offering some thoughts that are interesting and asking some questions that are getting you all thinking, but obviously I think we all know that there are a lot of limits to where we, where we are coming from and, and what perspectives we do and don't bring. Right. Uh, same, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I've only ever had heterosexual relationships. Um, my, my perspective is very narrow in terms of what I can really give an informed insight on. Uh, in that way, and so there's some going to be some areas where I just I might be completely missing something, uh, and that's on me. I, I just I don't have that perspective, and we don't have somebody. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so if, if we miss something like that, happy to hear about it. Actually, if, if uh, people want to comment, engage with us on Facebook uh, about stuff we missed, love to hear about it. Yeah, and I have only ever had relationships with men. I'm very interested in uh, increased and improved queer representation in media, and unfortunately, I can't do that. Uh, um, speaking of, oh, sorry. Uh, speaking of power-power relationships and non-hetero relationships, and Buffy the Vicar Slayer. Let's go! Uh, Willow and Tara started as two powered people in a very strong relationship that was built on trust and mutual respect. <laughs> and then Willow starts to go really hard in the paint on magic power and this this whole like magic or is actually drugs metaphor that they chose to go with. And that ends up being a betrayal of trust and the way they treat that. Uh, I love how Willow that was a deal breaker for her and that actually ended things as opposed to you had Tara. other what? You had Tara was a deal breaker. Yeah, for for Tara, yes. Tara was a deal breaker uh, because that was a complete betrayal of trust, and she was done with it. Um, how that ultimately ended up is still, ugh. yeah. Well, I, I think we can look at that as a, in, a, in a positive and a negative light because as a positive, Tara, at least in the early parts of Willow's addiction, is helping her and is understanding. I, I don't think you could ever have a non-powered person, even under, even if they knew the person who used magic, understand what an addiction to magic was, let alone how to help treat it. Right. Um, and and it's interesting also because what that what that story also brings up is a related issue, which I think we can clearly across the board say like bad, 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 but sometimes our heroes do this and it's not treated by the writers as bad. Which is when you use your powers to try and solve a relationship dispute. Yes, absolutely. Because at least I will give Buffy that credit is, to me, and I, I'm having trouble thinking of examples now, but I know it certainly happened, where a powered hero uses a power of theirs to basically like make make their lover or their partner forget or not know about, you know, or memory erase something that was bad. And it's actually, I'll give an example of where it did happen. Um, Superman 2. Um, Superman 2, and this again, uh, Jess Plummer, I know, has talked about this a lot, because um, she is a huge Superman fan and has been on the show to talk about Superman. Um, in that in that movie, Lois Lane is slowly figuring out that he's Clark, that Clark Kent is Superman. And he effectively, like, you know, changes her memories um, in a way that, I don't know other characters have done that, and to me, at least Tara breaks up with Willow when she figures out that that happened. Whereas in that movie, I don't remember if Lois just never finds out or if Lois forgives Clark. But either way, it is certainly not a relationship-ending issue. 
when it absolutely should be. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I liked the way that the Tara and Willow relationship played out for the most part. Um, because I was very frustrated with Willow, and I was glad that there was actually consequences for her actions. Right, because there was a betrayal of trust, and she used her power. So she used the fact that uh, the power dynamic in their relationship was no longer equivalent to manipulate her partner to be able to stay with her. Yeah. Like, huge, huge problems with that. Yeah. And again, they sing this whole song about it. <laughs> I, it's just it's just nice because we talk a lot about how power imbalances can be bad, and I don't think we get a, enough evidence as to why that happens outside of, like, the obvious. Whereas in this case, it was showing the manipulation that could happen, yes. which is kind of hard to portray in, like, mundane situations. Right. Um, and Jacob, I know, can you talk about, um, I, I know you'd want to talk about Jessica Jones and her dating life somewhat, um, as either positive or negative examples. Right. She, she has, not entirely, but mostly dated other people who have powers like herself. Right. Although she didn't start off knowing that with um, either of the partners that she's had in the television show. Right. Um, or the Netflix show, I guess. It's not technically television. Um, but... Her, her, she has a relationship with Luke Cage, um, and then she has a relationship with uh, Mindwave Eric. His yeah. name's Eric, right? Eric Gelder or something like that. Um, one of those, I think, is significantly better than the other one, given that uh, one person starts from so like Luke Cage starts from a position of generally being a, a relatively positive portrayal of a power person, um, whereas Eric. Uh, he's a blackmailer, and then she ends up, like, being apologist because the two of them are sleeping together, I think, and it, it feels really bad to me. Uh, and it's not really, like, I guess part of that is because Jessica has this feeling about herself, I think, as, like, not really a hero. Um, which I don't know why she's that down on herself, but, like, right. and so I think for her, she's all like, well, I'm really not that much better than him, so who am I? Uh, but, like, it, it, it seems problematic, but it's, it, they're both power uh, relationships, and neither one of them uh, has a situation where one of them uses their power to, uh, they don't exert their power over the other one in ways to, uh, you know, sort of tip the power balance or engage, and I think in both cases, Jessica Jones is actually the, the person with the control in the relationship. What, and to be clear, do you think that her relationship with Luke is healthier or the relationship with Eric is healthier? I think her relationship with Luke is healthier. See, I I think a lot of her relationship with Luke is healthier, except that it is built on one of the fundamental issues we just talked about, which is where the whole thing stems from a lie. Because the relationship ends when Luke finds out that she has known all along that she is the person who killed the... Um, the, you know, his, I think it was his first wife or his first, right. someone he was deeply in love with. And yes, she was under Kilgrave's control at the time, but there's definitely an element to which that, I mean, if nothing else, I think it's a good example that really, these things aren't black and white, that that relationship is a, a time when there's some really good parts, but there's also this fundamental thing that's built on that, that's really problematic. 
Yeah, I don't want to make excuses for like you're right. Um, but like a case could be made that that wasn't actually Jessica who did that, but she still owed him the truth of the situation as she I, knew it. I agree. I think that especially since it wasn't her fault, it should have been important for her to like give him closure. Right. Okay. Versus. Like, I could not imagine interacting with a person, much less having sex with them, knowing that, like, I know, like, how their wife died. Right. And it was by my own physical hands. Yes. Even yes. I didn't make the choice. Um, and and, it, it, and at the same time, I think she thinks it is her fault, right? Yeah. Because she's, at that point, incredibly damaged. Um. It's not. It's not an excuse. It's just a reason, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Well, like, you're right. The the right thing for her to do would be to complain. In that particular, like the reason why I think it's so healthier, uh, is that. Okay, I guess I just don't like Eric. I don't like Mindwave <laughs> at all as a character, and maybe that's why. But like, is that might have more to do with my criticisms of that character and his utilization in the show. And that's biasing me. And we have a whole different episode about our own personal biases informing how we view certain things. That's biasing me against that particular relationship because I don't think that Jessica's making good choices associating with him in that way. Yeah. Whereas at least Luke Cage is a, at that point, completely upstanding individual. He had not yet fallen from grace. I mean, it, it sounds like Jessica Jones is a show about Jessica Jones making not good choices. I mean, basically every season is about Jessica Jones not making good decisions. Like, J- Jake at one point used the phrase, you know, that was when she was really damaged, which I would question a bit in terms of her character. Um, I would, yeah. <laughs> oh, I she, she is less damaged after dealing with part yes. of her Kilgrave issue. This, is, yeah, this is definitely true. And I, I do see your point also because I think there's, it's one, it, there's the difference between the relationship that starts out on very poisoned ground, but then grows in a lot of ways, which I think you could say for her and Luke Cage, versus her with Eric, where it's a case of, in the depth of the relationship, as it goes further, she's becoming more and more of an apologist for his bad behavior. Yep. Um, the, the one thing I'll say also is, and this is kind of tied back to the first topic we talked about, for me, I think the fundamental problem of her with Luke Cage is what we talked about in the beginning, she's taking away his agency. Yes. Like, she's making her own moral judgment on herself and what moral weight she should or shouldn't carry for what she did to his wife. But she never allows him to look at, like, it is entirely possible that he would say, I, I hate the sight of you right now, but I understand that it's Kilgrave who made you do this, and I'm going to be able to, in time, forgive you and maybe build a relationship of my own with you. Or it's possible he would say, I don't buy into this mind control stuff. I think you did it. I don't want everyone to have a part of you. Or anything in the middle. But she totally takes away that agency. Yep. Um, And that's, I think, to me, that's the theme we talk about through all of this. Um, Just one more thing, just just, to sort of try to clear the air for myself. Um, I actually think my big problem with with the Eric romance is that it leans into that, oh, he's a bad boy, and that's the only reason I think that 
we're supposed to believe that Jessica's interested in him, and I just think that's garbage. Huh, that, I don't, I don't like that trope. That's not what I got. I, I did get that he was distinctly Trump. I felt like it was more that he seems like a bad guy, but is trying to do the right thing, and how much that differs from Cat in that in those situations. Um, but that that's we're going to be recording on Jessica Jones season three, so we can get into that. that sure, 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 sure. Um, let's get into the, at least what I had one more thing on the characters themselves before we start turning to the meta thing, which is either because I don't want to tell you, or because now you know you're in danger, I'm gonna break. I am going to nobly break up with you to protect you. What What's your take on? Um, so Jacob is making a very interesting hand gesture. I did not. I did that not. <laughs> I did not. That is. That is superhero that's not canon. Uh, <laughs> My point is that I'm going to remind Jacob that that voices are what works on podcasts, not visuals. But so, what, what are what, what are your takes on that particular trope? So, and this is going to be the experience that um, a lot of women in their mid to early twenties will share with me, and that is my first romance novel that I ever read was Twilight, and. I remember really Jacob just sighed heavily for those of you who couldn't hear. Alright, hold on, let me try that again. <sighs> I am pointedly not sighing for a reason I think we're gonna get into. Yeah. Go on. Um so I thought Twilight was really good when I read it. I was enthralled with the series, and one of the most tragic things that happened in the first book of Twilight was Edward broke up with Bella because he could not keep her safe. And this was a well first of all the outcome was Bella became suicidal in a way that wasn't described as suicidal and it was all described terribly in hindsight like it was a terrible way to treat like any sort of like mental illness but yeah it, it completely backfired and in every situation since reading that Twilight book I every every time that a breakup has happened it backfires because that just results in the heartbroken woman, almost always, putting herself into more danger as a result of her how distraught she is over being broken up with. Which really says a lot about the way that the author sees women and breaking breakups and stuff, and I don't like it at all. Yeah. I, I pretty much wanted to say, like, I... The Twilight books were, were not ones that I enjoyed as much, but I, I just kind of want to... I'm glad you brought that up, because I think it's very easy for us to kind of just dismiss the Twilight books and not remember, like, how important they were for a lot of people and, and, and in good and very bad ways. And um, the Twilight books are a great example of the power dynamic and how skewed it is between a male-powered character and the female protagonist, the, the yep. female love interest, where the her whole, like, quest in those books is to become powered so that she can correct how she, like the issues that she sees in the power imbalance between them. Right. And like and just that very idea of like I can't protect you so I have to break up with you. There's so much patriarchy in that very concept of like a relationship where I can't keep you safe is not one that can, can exist. Um, and, and I I especially I really appreciate the point you brought up about um, Morgan about like the way the way that we're often seeing the woman affected going forward. Um, because I used to think this was a very positive example, but I've now come to see it as, as much more problematic. Um, but is 
Toby, the, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man breaking up with MJ at the end of the first Spider-Man movie. Um, because and he basically gives her the speech of, I really love you and I want to be with you, but here's why I can't, because I would put you in danger, and so I have to make this terrible choice. And at the time, I thought that was revolutionary. I've not seen that in any superhero movie. I really liked the way it was being done and that he... He can't have it all. He has to not be with her. And, and I think I've started to see it through all the lenses of what we've talked about. But what I never realized until what you just said, Morgan, was the way that they show MJ responding to it. And the moment I'm remembering especially is from the second Tobey Maguire movie, which, no, I don't remember the actual name of it because they're all pretty bad after the first one, but is, you know, she'd had that very romantic kiss where he is upside down and kisses her. And she's clearly so focused on that that when she's dating the guy in the second movie who's an astronaut, um, I don't remember anything else about him except that he's an astronaut, he, like, she, like, makes him, like, kiss her in that exact way. Um, Isn't it Norman, whatever his name, is it Green Goblin's son? No, I think that's a different relationship. Okay. That, but, yeah, but it's the, he, he, no, it's, it's his best friend. Right, right, okay. Um, and just that moment of her, like, needing to try and recreate this kiss with a guy who had left her in kind of a cold way. Morgan, I, I, have you seen those movies? I have not seen Okay. Those, but does that sound like the same kind of dynamic you're talking about? Um, not exactly. Like, it's showing that she is not over the relationship. What I'm talking about is, like, the teeth gnashing and the chest pounding and the hair pulling associated with grieving over the loss of the relationship. Okay. Where... The woman, like, goes out and tries to find him while he's patrolling the streets. Or, like, in the case of Bella in Twilight, it was, like, she engaged in some very reckless behavior because it made her feel as if Edward was going to come and save her. And guess what? He does. Oh, God. And so, like, those things make me feel like the woman was only that relationship and as a result she can't recover from the loss of it because there's no more character outside of the relationship that's a very good point and let's not forget right the fundamental premise the, the instantiating idea or the breakup is that if i'm not in a relationship with you you are no longer going to be in danger but i still feel for you the, the idea, this idea that any fucking supervillain worth their salt will not go, oh, well, they're not dating, so even though he cares about her, there's no possible way that me kidnapping her is a good idea, <laughs> like, is so stupid. This had occurred to me because, um, you know, we, we just put out an episode again about all the problems with J.K. Rowling and, and why we love those books has some problems. How is it that no one ever suggests to Voldemort or to Snape you know, Harry Potter was spending a lot of time with this Ginny Weasley girl last year. Like, they've broken up. The idea that still it would not occur to Voldemort or someone like that, Ginny Weasley is someone Harry probably still cares a lot about. Let's do something to her to try to get his attention. Just makes no sense whatsoever. Or, and, and it's also why he's breaking up with her. And he's therefore, like, sidelining her throughout the entire last book. 
um, including the point of like wanting to spend time with the two friends, not her at the very end, drove me crazy. Sorry, Morgan. Um, well, like, on top of that, Hermione sent her parents to Australia. Like, Ron has a huge family that's very entrenched in wizard society. Like, that's tough. On like, I I think that it's that they could have been more manipulated at like through their family and friends. But that that I don't have a huge problem with it. I have a huge problem with Hermione altering the memory of her parents to erase her from their life. That was deeply upsetting. But yeah. I found that upsetting, but I found it like that I feel like she felt it felt like a needed thing for her to do. I I don't disagree. It was yeah. it's a moral gray area. That's like a sure. traditional Hermione very thorough right. type move, which yep. isn't like Hermione doesn't always think through the things that she's doing, apart from how clever they are. It, it's almost like she's got kind of a raven clawishness to her. But ah, anyway, that, no, she's obviously a Gryffindor. The Sorting Hat said so. <laughs> um, and we have to put people in the boxes. Uh, anyway, so while, while we're on the topic of this 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 whole thing, can we think of? I can think of only one example where the gender dynamic is flipped. And this happens, which is also Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I apparently will not shut up about. But when uh, first season Buffy, when she's uh, interested in this guy named Owen, right, and then realizes that you no know, being in a relationship with him is going to put him in danger. Um, but even there, it's a because he turns out to be somebody who like wants to get into danger more. Has he not excited about it? And that's like so they add that to it. Which sort of makes her argument of no, I can't do it because it's going to put him in danger make more sense. And he literally says, "No, I want to be in danger more. Let's go rob a bank or something." Yeah, that that in that at that point the motivation turns turns from I need to protect you to I need to get the fuck away from right, you. Right, like the oh, heck away from you. Uh, oh no, 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 I've already sworn yeah. we're fine. F bombs are totally okay on this show. Only our Harry Potter episode was guaranteed PG, and that was a soft guarantee because I can't be but, trusted. But sorry, we cut cut off your actual point. Yeah, yeah no, I like it, it. It moves from her being selfless to her being selfish, which, in the case of relationships, is something that I advocate for very strongly. Yeah. So you need to do what is right for you, not just what is the best for society, like quote-unquote society when it's like really two people right and, and that seems like such a good point because i think something that bothers me on both sides of this is i mean the way we are socialized men are socialized to think they are always being selfless even when they're actually being quite selfish women are for the most part socialized to to, to always think that they're being selfish like even though they're self-sacrificing and self-giving all the time and your point about like the need for more selfishness being such a good and healthy thing um because where I think a lot of that comes from is so often when it is the male hero saying, I'm going to break up with you, they're doing it, they're, they're claiming it's for your own good, it's to protect you, I'm, I'm giving up, I'm sacrificing myself because I want to be with you. When re- really they're making a very selfish decision because it's, as you said with Edward, it's the, the fear that I can't protect. It's the, the, I don't want to deal with this danger, I don't want to deal with this concern. It's almost always a and a heart, a kind of selfish motivation. And they're avoiding the potential for guilt when they, uh, like, clearly 
like inevitably can't do it. Yeah, they're uh, they're they're avoiding the consequences. You know, they've chosen to be a hero. That means often putting the people you love in danger, and they don't want to deal with that. Um, and that's so. We're almost we're almost like halfway into wherever this episode's going to be, and we're in danger of not getting our Netflix check to the episode. So I am going to bring up Matt Murdock. Um, he is someone who I think one of the things I like about the show Daredevil, even though it's about how bad he is, is we see so much of the collateral damage that he like he really wants to push people away all the time in his mind to keep them safe, and we see we really get to see. Karen Page and Foggy and others call him out on how much harm he does through it. I haven't seen Daredevil. Yeah, I believe you. It happens. I want them to do more of that in season three, but they at least did some of it. Uh-huh. Like, Matt Murdock had to answer for his bullshit a little bit. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, I know that like we have a severe fascination with Daredevil on this show. It is not the only Netflix show we did talk about Jessica Jones, so I already secured the paycheck. And we started, thanks to Morgan, we started doing a lot of talking about Batman and DC. So yeah. we're not even just Marvel. So, so we go. DC, send your check to Morgan, please. Yes. Um, there's one other point that I wanted to bring up. Well, actually, the one thing just quickly on, on Matt Murdock is when we talk about relationships, we've been talking almost exclusively about romantic relationships. And one thing I really like that Daredevil does, as well as that um, the most recent season of Jessica Jones does, is it brings up that sometimes the relationship in question isn't just a lover. Right. You know, in, in many ways, it's Foggy, Matt's best friend, who is the most hurt by his keeping the secret. And I really like how that show, and, and um, some of the other shows we've talked about explore Chuck, it's a, it's a lot about family members, not just romantic relationships. And I, I appreciate that, because I think it's important to name, it's not... The romantic relationships are often the most problematic, but other relationships can really be harmed by this, too. I mean, we're in a car, so I have to bring up Supernatural. Uh, <laughs> Sam and Dean constantly, like, these are people who's, they're brothers, they work together constantly, they're constantly both in danger, and they just continue this trend of lying to each other about important shit that informs their job and the consequences of decisions they make. Yep. In order to try to protect each other. It's, just, it's, it's so frustrating. It's such garbage. You're idiots constantly. And, and, and like, oh, go ahead. And like, I buy it because if they make the bad decision once, they don't learn because that's how humans work. We don't learn and we never change. Uh, <laughs> according to the stories, at least. But, like, it is deeply, deeply frustrating because they should know better after a certain period of time. Um, but, like, there, there's an example of a, you know, not romantic relationship, and both people are, they're not powered, but they're both doing, they're both doing the job. They're both heroes, right? And they still can't be being honest with each other. Yeah. Let alone anyone else they have a relationship with ever. Right. I, and, like, all their relationships are one-offs, and eventually, like, usually in the same episode it comes out that, nope, I'm a hunter, because we're really bad at keeping this particular secret, because the monsters are always attacking you. <laughs> yeah. And I think in that case, it's kind of interesting, too, because in, yeah, at least partially, their reluctance to tell people about their job isn't necessarily to protect their secret identity, 
but because people think that they're crazy. Yep. And, you know, I think that I would like to know things that my partner thinks that I would think that they were crazy for. 100%. Uh, to increase my agency and my relationships. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, they just don't want to have to deal with that particular consequence. So, like, well, maybe this time I won't have to come clean. <laughs> right. There's one other point about this that I wanted to make, and maybe we can shift into the, the more meta side of things. Um, and it, it's, I wish that, like, I could say that all writers collectively were making this deep psychological point. I don't think they are, but I wonder if you guys see this and if you think that there's, like, something to explore here. We've talked in, our, in other episodes about how one of the things that can often happen to a person if you have these superpowers if you start getting used to the idea that you can fix a lot of things that many other people can't fix, it becomes very hard to start remembering that there are parts of your world that you can't control. You know, and I, I especially the more powered you become. And I wonder if, whether intended by the writers or not, and hopefully sometimes it is intended by the writers, if that's kind of one of the points that's often being explored here, is a thought of like, if I can control crime, if I can control the city, if I can control these other people, then surely I can control the emotions of this person I'm in love with. Or I can keep them safe. Or I can, like... And that, that kind of part of the the reason why our heroes freak out so much about this is because they fundamentally... There's, like, a break that happens when they realize there's something that they fundamentally can't control. I think that... I think it's possible that some writers are doing that uh, intentionally. I also think there's a virtue fallacy that that is a motivation for some of the storytelling that I, I might attribute to some writers. This idea that, well, I keep doing this and eventually I, like, I'm desensitized to the consequences of these particular decisions because I've done them so many times that now it's not, you know, I, I can't think about it anymore because I'm focused more on this this job that I've assumed that I can't get away from, and what I have to do to make that, and I fall into a pattern. Yeah. Right? And it's a pattern, in, in this case, of abuse when we're talking about um, not being up front with your partners. Right? right. But it's, so, so it's something that happens in real life where somebody keeps doing the same thing to different people they associate with, because they never actually learn their lesson. Well, it kind of, this is something that gets explored in Buffy, where, like, it's definitely intentional, where it goes into how much she wants to control her life and her environment, but how little control she actually has over it, and what exerting that control, what impact that has on her friends, who get very frustrated by their friend telling them that, no, they can't help, because... A, she is doing all of the, she she is in control, and B, they are not as good as her. And like, it's a really, it's a really cool story arc. It's very frustrating for fans of Buffy the Vampire Slayer to see Buffy, like, be that mean. Right. But. Especially, oh, sorry, continue. But it, uh, it, that is, that is an example where it's definitely intentional, but I can see, like, as somebody who suffers from anxiety, like we're gonna we're gonna drop mental health into this relationship podcast. Um, but like when I try to exert more control over my life is when I tend to get the most anxious because I suddenly see 
all of the elements that I don't have control over. And yeah. I wasn't quite sure where I was going with that. But in, um, in relationships, like, the more you try to control it, the more they control you. Yeah, the more, the, the, the tighter your grip on the galaxy, the more star systems slip through your fingers. <laughs> and I will bring, I, I think it's... Well, the great princess Leia. <laughs> I think it's important also to bring up here, like, obviously... Um, General Leia. Yeah, and we're, General Leia. General Organa. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, keeping this a, a fairly family-friendly podcast, but you should name it, that there are some relationships in which one person having some degree of control over the other is something that both partners consensually agree to. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I think that is a topic that is becoming more popular to talk about in popular media, which is great, except that therefore we are getting an awful lot of superhero relationships. And I, I, I don't remember them as well, but I think this is certainly a part of Twilight, where we are having that the, the way that a powered individual exerts control over a non-powered or lesser-powered individual is presented in what could be viewed as abusive, but is being presented by the writers in a deeply erotic way. Yes. Sure. Yes. Um, where it's, it's kinky. Right. I mean, my, my favorite, like, I cringe anytime I see the, like, Harley and Joker as, oh, as relationship model, because that is such a fundamentally abusive relationship model. But if you watch just like the most the Suicide Squad movie, I, I liked some parts of it, but I hated it in many ways because its portrayal of Joker and Harley as deeply romantic and incredibly erotic and like relationship goals, and that is so clearly a deeply abusive relationship of the way Joker treats Harley. I have nothing to add. I agree. Yes. Uh, I'm just gonna throw this out here: Harley and Poison Ivy. Forever and ever. Yes. Yes. Let's move on. That is so much better. better. Such a better relationship. Um, so is there anything else about kind of the, the characters themselves, or do you want to start talking about the meta questions? Let's get into some of the meta stuff. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's just start with, I know, and, um, Morgan, this is one of the first questions you asked when we talked about this. Why do we think we have relationships in these, in these movies? Like, and do we always need them? In movies, TV shows, books, video games, all of it. I think that part of the part of it is relationships are part of our everyday life, right? You can't, well, I can't go through my life without considering relationships with the people that I meet or people that I'm friends with. And, like, romantic relationships are a big part of that. Um, so it's natural for people to want to present this in stories about somebody's life. Additionally, though, I think that a relationship is part of this big secret checklist that everybody has, or that everybody thinks that everybody has, where it's like job, relationship, and a car, or a companion animal. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you gotta have wheels. <laughs> I'm just it. saying. Love so, it. like, no story is complete. Well, I'm doing big air quotes here, listeners. Um, without, <laughs> without a relationship. And that is not a good reason to have relationships in like media, but it is definitely one of the reasons that they are in there. Yeah. I mean, I think that, it, to me, one of the most frustrating things is that, and we're starting to see stuff fight this, but it is very much a trope of a hero needs 
a girl, you know, and and, and even if either it's not a male character or if it's not a heterosexual character, they still need a love interest. And I say girl very intentionally because it's often portrayed in a very diminutive way. Like I think there's just this sense of, and as I said, it's it's, it's a very stupid gender stereotype that you know you can't have, if you, especially if you have a very sexy male character like a Thor, uh, a Thor or a Captain America, that a sizable portion of the audience will only go to see that if they're a love interest in the show. And um, one of the things about this is the relationship can also be seen as, like, the reward for being yes. a good guy. Um, you know, you save the girl, you get the girl is frequently what happens like a lot of the times in superhero properties the meet cute is the woman being rescued i mean we've we've mentioned this before but ghostbusters the original with bill murray and dan Aykroyd, i love that movie in so many ways the romance plot is awful <laughs> and it's a perfect example of this she hates him until he rescues her and then she's like oh well you saved my life i gotta kiss you now teaches especially men and especially uh like young men teenage teenage boys i guess i should say or whatever the wrong ideas about how to approach starting relationships with with their their interests right it's that's that's not how the real world works but we they fall into that pattern and it, it teaches that idea that that somehow like if you if you are successful enough at something, if you do something, that you will earn a relationship with a woman. It also changes the way that I personally, for a long time, looked at the beginning of relationships, where the I I needed some sort of signpost to show me that that relationship was starting. Where in my experience, the most fulfilling relationships that I've had have been with people that were there all along, listeners, and and they, there was never like a like a big moment where that relationship started or like a grand gesture from either of us. But that is what people look for, and it can really diminish their perspective on like what they can do. I, I'm I'm very hesitant about arguments of like. Well, this bad thing in media is because this bad thing in culture is because of this bad thing in media. Sure. But I do these things are connected, and certainly, you know, I at one point did some real like, you know, put on my rubber hazmat suit and waded into some of the discussions from people who are talking about like how awful the friend zone is and all that kind of bullshit. Like, what I mean is like men who say they're in the friend zone, not people who talk about how awful the culture of friend zoning is. Right. Um, but and a lot of those men. When they talk about, like, why isn't it supposed to be, they'll bring up, like, you know, like, Superman rescued Lois Lane, and so she fell for him. Like, that's, I think you're right, Jacob, that is, toxic masculinity has been with us for thousands of years. This is only a most recent example of it, but that is an example of how it can get treated. Right. Um, And now, uh, listeners, I'm going to, the rain is starting pretty hard, um, which is going to probably both affect um, recordability and... Um, driving safety. So, with the consent of my two co-hosts, I'm going to suggest we have pause for a few minutes. Uh, we will return shortly.
Welcome back to the continuation of this episode. The rain has stopped. We are still in traffic, but it is a lot safer and quieter. So we're going to keep talking about relationships in superhero and related stories. And I do want to just say as a quick note, um, we had a good conversation about gaslighting earlier in our show, uh, but I did not give proper credit. Um, I'd asked for people to tweet in to the Superhero Ethics account with ideas about things we should be talking about for this episode. Uh, I mentioned that Jess Plummer had written in with a lot of good things. Another friend of the show and frequent guest, uh, Becky Allen, she was the one who brought uh, uh, up the topic of gaslighting that we spent so much time talking about. So thank you, Becky. And a good reminder to all our fans and, and fellow listeners and fellow podcasters, anytime you want to um, write in with a topic or write in with some thoughts on an episode we have talked about or that we are going to talk about, please do so, and we'd love to um, have it and use it as part of our discussion today. So... Uh, now, uh, Morgan and Jacob, let's pick back up where we left off. Um, talking about this kind of more meta topic about why writers uh, and often producers and executives put, relation- put uh, relationships into a movie they don't really feel like they need to be there. I and- have, Go ahead. I have uh, two ideas about why this might be happening, uh-huh. apart from like the social expectations. Yeah. Um, one is, as a writer, myself... It sometimes can be difficult to move the plot forward. And so one of the ways to motivate a character is through external factors. And one of the potentially greatest motivators is the person they're in the relationship with causing them to need to do something. So giving them a relationship can provide the writer with a tool that will allow them to motivate the character like further on in the book. It also, or, or movie or whatever, it also gives the character something to do against the main, like, the background of the main plot of the movie is to form that relationship. Um, it's kind of like, that's often a good B story? Yes, it's often a good B story. It, like, it can increase the world building by introducing characters who have, like, different roles in the world that than the protagonist, etc. A more cynical perspective on this, and it's something that we talked about before recording the episode, is, um, the way that introducing a character typically of another gender from the main character will broaden the audience. There were air quotes there, too. Yeah. Where women won't go see movies where men are the lead and vice versa. But if you put a male character or a female character in the opposite gender's movie, then maybe you'll get that other uh, that other half of the population, and also might as well put them in a relationship with the main character because there's no other role that they can have yeah. as a person of the opposite gender of the main character. I, I think that's a very good point. I um, one of the other podcasts I listen to is uh, Batman Beyond, formerly uh, Fat Men on Batman, Kevin Smith's podcast, um, and he he is someone who's spent a long time in Hollywood as a writer. But really kind of trying to buck the trend has talked a lot about the kind of pressure he often gets from studio executives. Um, and, and one thing I remember him saying, which I thought was fascinating, and Morgan ties right into your point, is he, either him or, or his uh, podcast partner, um, uh, Kevin, I'm not sure which one it was, but the point they were making was that there's a belief that you can't, you can't just have a sexy character on screen. You need to have someone else who thinks they're sexy. You can't have a character who just the audience will believe is lovable and romantic 
unless you have someone else going, oh, Steve, you're so romantic, you know, or, or, or that. And then often it's, and to me, I think this gets into some of the worst sexism that we see is when the female character is mostly there, and, and as you're right, I think it's mostly female, to be literally a character development point for our hero. That's kind of an interesting subversion of the show-don't-tell rule, too, where you actually have to have a character on screen telling you that this person is attractive and romantic. Yeah, I mean, like, at some level, it is show, because it's showing that people find him sexy, Uh but it's also trust. Like, personally, I think Steve Rogers being incredibly polite and also, like, flexing his muscles to stop a helicopter, I think some people are going to find him sexy all on their own. Yeah. But, like... But that's, it does seem so often the writers and producers just don't have very much faith in their audiences. And I think on this topic, that's especially true. I have nothing to add, sorry. <laughs> I, I agree. I'm very boring on this one. Um, but Jake, Jake, you want to give us some other examples you think of where, like, a romantic, a romantic uh, B story just seemed superfluous and not really needed and kind of not great introduction of the woman character? Oh, so... Sorry, give me a second. Uh, I'm not quite in... Uh... I have one. Oh, cool. Um, so, this one isn't necessarily... It isn't necessarily an introduction of a woman character who just... who is just there to be a love interest. It's kind of the opposite, where there's a woman character, so she has to be a love interest. Um, even though on her own she is a fully fleshed out character who is very deserving of the audience's attention. Um, and that's Hermione Granger. Um, where, like, there were arguments, like, I remember having arguments as a kid where we were trying to figure out who Hermione would end up with, Harry or Ron, because we just expected her to be in a relationship with one of those two, because... That's what society said at that point. That's a great point. Yeah. And she didn't need to be. No. Um, I was, like, she's my favorite character in Harry Potter for the most part. So, like, she was totally fine before any of that. And as we've already discussed her relationship with Ron, it's exactly the healthiest thing in the world. And most of it's not really her fault, I think. Yeah, not I... Not really on her that, that relationship thinks. No, I, like... Hermione had her own relationships outside of her relationships with Harry and Ron, too. And, like, I thought that was great. And it kind of, it kind of made me sad that she ended up with Ron because, like, the the female character of the trio had to end up with one of the men. Like, that's just how it worked. And it just felt forced in that situation. I think that's a very good example. Another one where more on the other side where I felt like the woman character was not developed and where I really hope this is now going to be fixed because it made me so angry especially given the actress involved was Jane Foster in the first Thor movies who just like and I know in the comics she's a very well fleshed out character and you got Natalie Portman who's a fantastic actress and in the first Thor movie she really just exists to either insert scientific babble dialogue or to sigh at how beautiful Thor is, and then to be rescued. And I, I remember one of the things that was always kind of most bothered me about the Thor movies and Thor as a character is you establish that he has supposedly, like of all the planets he has traveled to, Earth is the one he is 
most crazy about, and if Loki harms it, it will most bother him. And in the first movie, this is after he's had, like, one date and maybe one kiss with Jane Foster. And there is just so little chemistry between those characters on screen, and we know so little about her, other than, again, like I said, she's a scientist and she loves Thor. I'm really hoping the new movie will really develop her, because... I think she's one of the, the women in, in the Marvel Universe, at least, who's been the worst treated. It's a, you're right. It, the first Thor movie really felt like these are two attractive people, so they need to get together, because that's what attractive people do. <laughs> yeah. That's not a good foundation for a, a long-lasting relationship, I think. I, I guess I can't say I speak from experience there, because I don't know. But, like, I'm pretty sure... <laughs> that you need more than just both y'all are real good looking. I would also like to interject at this point, like, you know, an hour plus into the podcast, that your goal does not have to be a long-term loving relationship. Thank you. As a, as a character or as a person. However, that tends to be what is portrayed in these movies. And yep. so, like... Well, two attractive people can get together because they're attracted to each other, and that sounds like great. Um, like, it, it, it does not sound like the the entirety of a foundation for a loving, like a loving long-term relationship. But that right. sounds like one hell of a good time. Unfortunately, that's not how it's presented in the movies. Like, people keep checking in on Natalie Portman's character, even when Thor hasn't seen her in forever. Like, I, to me, and especially to the geek media. At least on television, this all starts with Star Trek, where Captain Kirk was horribly manipulative and womanizing. But we get to Next Generation, and the pendulum swings all the way to the other end. And apparently, in the future, there are no, there's no more commun, there's no more capitalism and no more money. But there's also no more one night stands, um, because if two people kiss in Star Trek, they are utterly and totally in love. And uh, unless one of those people is William T. Riker. Even then, he falls pretty hard. They're, they're, they really try to play him that he's he's falling in love with these women. Um, and, you, you know, sometimes you just want to have some fun with a green-skinned alien. And, like, it would be nice to have some more of that as well. Because I think Morgan's point here pretty, <clears throat> makes a lot of sense that there's anything that's ever explored in one of these shows or one of these movies, it has to be they're trying to find out if they're the love of each other's lives. And maybe they think that James Bond did that enough and they don't need to explore it anymore, but, but, yeah, right? But, but that, right? look what we're doing. We're now saying that the two alternatives are fall in love for life or right. horribly manipulative womanizer. Right, like, that doesn't seem right either. No. Yeah. Whereas, like, hey, we're both really attracted to each other, let's have some fun, see what happens, and either way it goes, that's okay. And I have read some books recently where the, like, outcome was not, like, love of each other's life. In one, it was really cool because it was just, we're going to be friends with benefits for a while, like, as long as it works out for us. And another one, it's like, there's a love triangle, but just kidding, there was never a love triangle. They were all just in love with each other. Like, and that sounds like, that's great. I, I enjoy that quite a lot. Unfortunately, that's not really what is presented in any of, like, for example, the Mar- Mar- the MCU movies, um, and it's unfortunately not a lot of what we get to talk about in the podcast. 
I, I will give you just one example, and this is a little bit far afield from superheroes, but I think still sadly within the geek media. Morgan, you kind of brought up the idea of love triangles, which always, always make me roll my eyes. <laughs> the one love triangle that I adore is in The Hunger Games. And it's specifically because so often the love triangle is two men who are vying for the woman, and the woman has almost no agency. She's just sort of sighing and can't decide, and what will she do? In The Hunger Games, throughout the three books, she is constantly the one in utter control, based entirely on which one of them she needs more in her life. <laughs> and obviously a lot of this is because she's very damaged, and a part of this is her story of learning to actually love people, not just for what they can bring into her life. But she's also very clearly the one in control, playing the two boys off of each other, keeping them hanging, and I just, I love that so much, because it's it's such a nice reversal on the traditional, uh, I, mean, I mean, the Twilight, I know, like, very much, I think of an example of yeah. that, of Bella just sighing as Edward and Jacob, you know, do toxic masculinity nonsense to each other. So, when, at first when you said Hunger Games, I cringed, because, like, the love triangle was one of my least favorite parts of that story, but when you put it that way, it makes me want to go back and read them with that perspective. <laughs> No, just th- I, I just love thinking about, like, you know, some, like, group meeting and all of the Bellas of the world complaining about their the boys and not being aside and Katniss just being like, girls, get over this. <laughs> Take some control. Um, we don't have too much more time because our, our ride is not too much longer, so I want to make sure we get to a big, big elephant in the room and a really important one when it comes to the problems of relationships, um, which is when the woman character especially, and yeah, Kruja always the woman character, exists just to be a plot point, and especially when she winds up dead, in the process that we now know is fridging, uh, because of a very awful example where, uh, um, in a comic book, where a, a, a woman character literally just like came into the character's life, we grew to like the character, and then he came home to find her head in the refrigerator. Um, what's, I mean, obviously I think we all agree fridging bad. Um, but what what more can we talk about? I mean, what, why is it that this is such a problematic dynamic in in superhero media? It really invalidates the female character in a lot of ways because that character was never going to do anything beyond motivate the, the male lead. And where what I want from my like women in media is someone who has her own independence outside of that relationship because at best it's codependent and at worst it's one-dimensional storytelling. Right. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a case where the woman character is not, and we were talking about this before we started the podcast, but it feels in those stories like the woman character is a, a shell presented as a something that's got enough information to make you care, but the purpose isn't to be a person, the purpose is to be a part. Right. And that is close enough, if not exactly the same, as objectifying women. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 there's other things that stories do that do this that it just is inexcusable. And, it, you know, there's that, that old thing about how sometimes people say, like, remember every, everyone, every woman who goes through something terrible is someone's daughter or someone's wife or someone's mother. And that that's awful because you're saying her value comes from her relationship with someone else. Right. Um, and th- I think this fits in that same kind of mold. It's that, as you, as you were both saying, 
instead of these women being characters in their own right, they're defined just as their own thing. Um, I will say, we talked about Matt Murdock. To me, there's a lot of reasons why I did not love the Matt and Elektra um, storyline, but I do think she's a good example in the MCU of a character who is a romantic character, and actually so is Karen Page, but both of whom don't exist to be they, they demonstrate parts of where Matt is on his journey, but you also get to connect with them as their own characters in their own light, um, which it's unfortunate that's rare. Um, I think that one of my first, like, media experiences of bridging was watching Supernatural. We're going to go back to Supernatural because this is a great one. Yep. That, where... sh- that show, as I commented, has a whole Best Buy warehouse of refrigerators attached to it. <laughs> yeah. Go on, sorry. But, like, it's the, it's the inciting incident of the entire show when Sam's girlfriend gets murdered. And we saw her for, like, the briefest second, and the best we, like, the best we knew was that they were in a loving relationship and probably getting married. And, like, talk about defining women by her, by their relationships to men. Like, I knew next to nothing about this character other than they were in love, they were getting married, and then she died. And the tragedy was they were never going to start a family together, and I, I was sad about that when I saw it because, you know, they were going to get married. They were in love. Like, but also, I think she was in law school. Does that? I'm pretty sure it was law school. Yeah. She might have been in medical school. I know Sam was in law school. I think they yeah. were in school together. I mean, this is kind of proving the point. Does anyone remember her name? No. Oh, oh Jessica. Her name was okay. Jessica. Okay. <laughs> that woman had a name. But she was going to school for a professional degree. She had... That person had aspirations, probably, but we did not know them. Yeah. And it, it is a tactic that, that Supernatural, especially because the core relationship of that show is the two brothers, as we talked about before, and they don't want anything else to appear it, you know, the number of times they fall for a woman and then something terrible happens to her is pretty darn high. Um, and this one is specifically used because Sam... Sam was in the hunting life, right? And he got out of it. He was on the, and she was his connection outside of it. And so it seems to me, like looking back, that the writers thought, well, the only way we can put him back into the story to, is to kill that connection. And so they created the character to be able to, to make that break. Yeah. And it happened... Oh, God. Like, the, the show gets, like, Ragging on it a lot right now. The show is, in my opinion, still great. It's going to be in its final season. I'm very excited to see it end. And finally, oh my god. Yeah, finally, right? Um, I have a lot of thoughts about how the show is going to end. Uh, I do like how they're going with the JRPG ending, where in fact their enemy is God. So that's really cool. Uh, but yeah, it did not start from the best place. What? Uh, Sorry for that edit, folks. We had a very loud car next to us. Um, masculine energy and toxic masculinity. Um, but the, there's a related point there, I think, and this happens with Sam, but it also happens with a lot of other characters, where one of the plot points is that the woman, our hero, has fallen in love with someone, and again, we're talking about men-women, because again, there's a, these are all heterosexual relationships, that there's now a near enough queer relationships in these shows, that's another point. Um, but, but the man has sort of, like, 
you know, he's softened his ways. He has, he's no longer violent. He's no longer a hunter. He's no longer quick to, to pick up the gun, whatever it is. And the woman in his life has changed him in a lot of ways. And she dies, and he honors her memory by forgetting everything she taught him and going back to... And I, and I will say, I, I'm very rarely super positive about Frank, Frank Castle and The Punisher. Um, but this is actually one thing that I do like about that show, because the other part of that dynamic that always drives me crazy is when the whole point is our hero is so heartbroken over the woman he loved dying that he has to find vengeance for her. And by the way, he starts hooking up with some woman who helps him along the way to the journey. Like, that always struck me as a little weird. Um, and I do like that in The Punisher, uh, in the Frank Castle show on Netflix, you see him constantly, like, warring with the idea of, is he honoring the memory of his dead wife? Is he betraying that memory? And also, because he's so wrapped up in that memory, he does not show interest when someone like Karen Page or others, you know, become examples of possible romantic partnerships for him. Um, there's an awful lot else about that is really bad about how Frank handles the women in his life, especially in season two. But I did that to me, A, it fe I felt better about it because she was never really a character on screen. She was just a character in memory, which isn't still great, but is at least better. But the fact that he doesn't go on that road, he, does, he at least is aware of how much her role in his life might be changing by his vengeance quest, and he doesn't just hop into bed with someone. That I, I, that I liked at least a little more. I want to challenge you a little bit on her, it being more okay because she's a she's not a character on screen, but just in his memory. Um, just because we've been talking about like women being used as a motivator for right men. Do you think that it's okay because she really wasn't ever a character and therefore like the memory is the thing rather than her herself? I think it's the difference between what Frank is told versus what we as the audience are told. Because to me, I, I think, like, like I'm not saying, it's, I, I wish we had I wish we could just for a while get, in the same way I like, I want to stop having sexual violence as a plot point, I would really like to stop having dead female romantic partners as a plot point entirely. Yeah. But I feel like if you're going to have it, I think this way is better because when the character does appear on screen long enough for us to develop a relationship with that character and to start to care about that character, only to have that character die that feels very emotionally manipulative to me. It feels like now you're not only using her to, in the story, manipulate the character, you're using her to manipulate the audience. So this is more honest, because you already knew that she was dead all along. I think so, and you never sort of, like, get the... And it doesn't... To me, it's one thing for, like, the, the character to be motivated by her death, but to make the audience now feel like, oh, you know why I think this villain is really bad? Because they killed you know, that character. Yeah. Like, to me, that's, that's it's, it's one more level of, of it's kind of like, it's one thing for Frank Castle to be fridged, that's bad enough, but now we, the audience, are getting fridged. Um, so, one of the tropes that is related to fridging that we 
we haven't really talked about is the bring out your gaze trope, which is more related to queer characters as themselves and less as in relationships. Um, I don't know. Can you explain what you mean by that trope? Bring out your gaze. Bring out your gaze. It's really, it's a, a reference to bring out your gaze. Oh, so the barrier gaze. Yeah, barrier gaze. Oh, okay. Yeah, yep. barrier gaze. So, yep. um, the barrier gaze trope, which, um, here we go. Here's the connection. Oh, did you say G-A-Y-S, not G-A-Z? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Got so it. The, 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 the barrier gaze trope, where the gay character, or the queer in order to introduce more motivation to the rest of the characters. And that could be like either to have them want to kill the bad guy, or it could motivate them to be better people because life is so gosh darn short. And um, I think that this is another way that marginalized groups are used for the furtherance of like majority characters that are typically cis, heterosexual, white sometimes men a lot lot of times men and I especially appreciate you bringing that point up because the gay in this this regard, the queer character it's it's just an evolution you know, 25 years ago the comment used to be you know, if you're the black friend in a Sylvester Stallone movie or an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, your life expectancy is quite short. Um, and now I think you're right, it's happening with, with, with gay characters or, or other, you know, whoever's now considered to be the most marginalized. Right, we get it in, um, we get it in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, again with Tara, we get it in, um, we get it in Supernatural with Charlie. Right, which is upsetting because that is a gay female character dying for the motivation of our male characters. Yeah, it's like, oh my god, they buckled down, why would they do that? Don't kill Felicia Day to make our heroes mad, we don't need to do that, they're already mad. (laughs) And and it ties into what we've also been saying about um, when Buffy sleeps with Angel, that there's this moralistic thing of like, you can't have characters but you can't have young women characters be sexually active without there being consequences. For a while, you couldn't have, and still in many ways this is still the case, you couldn't have gay characters appear on screen without them dying or without something horrible happening to them. And there was always this kind of subtle, you know, that the gay character is getting what they deserve. It's a, and, and again, it's a horrible trope, but that's, I, I think, Morgan, is that fair to say that kind of ties into what you're talking about? Um, it kind of does. Like, I'm, I'm mostly talking about, like, the connection where, in this case, it's moralistic, um, Versus, like, having it be part of society's expectations for the um, for the movie, you are you had subverted them by including a gay character because you know heaven forbid you just include a character that's gay. Um, just to frame it, can you give a, a specific example of the kind of thing you're talking about? Oh gosh, like I think Tara is a really good one, just because like she sits in the middle of the Venn diagram that we're talking about. Um, but, like, like, making Willow gay was great. Like, I loved that they included a queer relationship, especially in a TV show from, like, the mid-90s, the late-90s, early-2000s. No, I I agree with you. I think Tara is a great example of this. And I think that there's, um, 
I, I think one thing it ties into, and this is kind of a different point moving away from preaching wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. is for so long we've had so few, we still have so few queer, non, non-cis, non-straight characters appearing on screen, that when they do, there's still, there's all these issues of either um, uh, queer baiting, which is when sort of the show or the movie does everything they can to like make the audience think these characters might be into each other, but never quite says it so as not to bother people, versus queer coding, which is more about like using, um, kind of like uh, the character of Holtzman in, in Ghostbusters. Um, a character who is never explicitly said in any way that she is a lesbian. It is incredibly clear that that's what she is. Uh, and it's celebrated a great part of her character. Um, and I know it ties into something we wanted to talk about all, also, which is like the movies where characters don't have relationships necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to bring up Captain Marvel. Um, okay. And bring this up because like on the one hand, Captain Marvel often gets talked about as a, look, you can have a strong female character who doesn't need a relationship. On the other hand, there's a, a lot of perspective that that is a romantic movie and that there is a very strongly um, hinted at, if not outright stated, uh, uh, same-gender relationship between um, Captain Marvel and um, her pilot friend, whose name I'm blanking on. Um, what's your guys' take on Captain Marvel and sort of the, the way relationships are portrayed in that movie? I mean, we, we talk already about uh, Captain Marvel and my deep love for the movie as a whole. For me, I didn't equate to any romantic relationships being portrayed in that movie, but I'm not going to sit here and say there wasn't one, but if there was one, it went right over my head. Um, because my focus watching the movie was uh, surrounding Captain Marvel herself and her story, right? And for me, her story was one of being, I, I was focused on, on her being held back, on her being uh, manipulated, and, uh, and overcoming that and coming into her own power, and I wasn't as much focused on her interpersonal relationships, because to me, it didn't seem like that was the focus of the story. I think that, um, at the very least, uh, Captain Marvel's relationship with Maria... Thank you. Uh, who, at the very least, was her, like, best friend from the, from her career as a pilot, or as a whooping pilot, um, it, it, like, uh, serves as a great, uh, what's the, it's not a contradiction, but, like, a, a, great, a great counterpoint, yeah, as a, a great counterpoint to Captain Marvel's relationship with all of the men in her life who, like, manipulated her into thinking that she was weaker than she was, because her relationship with Maria is all about building each other up, and that was really cool to see. And, like, my perspective on the, like, potential relationship between Captain Marvel and Maria in that movie is based on all of my friends on Twitter being really excited about, like, a gay superhero for, like, the first time, and it's just that, like, depicted on screen, especially, like, a strong lesbian superhero. Yeah. Um, where, like, there is definitely some subtext of, like, her potentially, like, having history with her friend, and that was really cool to see. Um, the fact that it wasn't, like, the 
main focus of the movie is fine. Like, the fact that they didn't explicitly state it, for me, is fine. Um, the fact, like, if they just completely ignore it in the next movie, I'll be pretty disappointed. But, um, it's definitely, to me, it has potential, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I, I think those are great points, and I, to, to steal your line from earlier, to me, Captain Marvel sits in the center of that Venn diagram of a lot of these discussions because, I mean, first of all, um, you know, the great, the great development of her relationship um, and breaking of the relationship with the, the male character who's kind of our main villain. Yeah, that asshole. Um, and the fact that, like, that could so easily have been he's the love who betrayed her yeah, and so... I was she so has worried to, about that. She had, yeah, and like, that's the trope off, and she had, like, he is still entirely her focus, and she has to meet him on his own terms. And the fact that she so thoroughly rejects him and that dynamic, I loved. And, and uh, echoing all the stuff you guys said, you know, one of the things I, one of the other things that bothers me about the way these tropes often play out is these movies, these TV shows, like much of entertainment, buys into the idea that every relationship is either a friend or a romantic partnership with a bright iron line in between the two. And kind of working figure out what you're saying, I love the idea that like her and Maria clearly deeply love each other. And whether that love is friendship or has romantic elements or has erotic elements or has all these different things, it, it's a powerful, amorphous relationship with a lot of gray in a lot of directions. And I love that there's so much potential in so many different directions that it's never told exactly what it is, because that's something we almost never see. We are getting pretty close to our final destination. That sounds really wrong. We're getting really close to home. Um, we're going to drop people off, and we're all pretty tired and brain dead, which is why this conversation is dying a little bit, and I apologize. It's not just me talking all the time. Uh, but let me just say, so kind of wrapping up, um, uh, Morgan or Jacob, are there any kind of final thoughts you want to share as we, as we finish up? I want to say that introducing romantic relationships into whatever story that you're telling is not something that automatically disqualifies it from being feminist. However, I want to introduce the idea, like, I would love to see more relationships that aren't just men with women getting married at the end in my media. I would like to see men with women being friends. Like, that. I love the relationship between Black Widow and Captain America in, um, I think it was Winter Soldier, yes. where they're just hanging out. That was great. Um, and like stuff like that so like there is definitely more variety in relationships between men and women and women and women and men and men and everybody between everybody than what we are seeing and um i'll see more of that jacob i mean i've already been on record on this podcast about how i like positive portrayals of male male friendship that we don't really get a lot of and um uh relationships between characters where it's okay if they're just friends even if they are people who are attracted to the gender that the other person is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also wouldn't... I, like, if if the... If there was supposed to be some kind of romance uh, between Captain Marvel and Maria, I think there is a... It's sort of a, a mark against the movie that... Because I feel like if that if that movie was had a heterosexual relationship, they would have written in a scene with something explicitly showing that, right? And I don't... I feel like if you're going to have it in there, 
like we're at a point where I like this just actually feel that happening or not. Um, because I think dancing around it and like don't try to have an easier cake of like not pissing people off who have backwards ideas about whether those kinds of relationships are okay. Like show them. Right. Well, that's the whole this and, whole concept yeah. of fear baiting. That's yeah. exactly hate, what it is. Hate the chance uh, because it shouldn't be a chance. Let's move the culture forward. Yeah, and I, I, I think I think kind of where I want it too. And I, I love Morgan. You bring up the Captain, uh, Captain America and Black Widow relationship because I see that both as the writers doing a really great thing, while at the same time the producers tried to do the shitty thing. Because the other thing is that there is a moment in that movie where they kiss. It is an attempt to like get people not to look at them while they're hiding, but that kiss was one hundred percent in the trailers. You know, and, yeah. and so to me, it's an example of where they were like, oh, hey, we're going to have them not fall in love, but of course, we're going to tease the fact that these two ridiculously attractive people on screen together to get people into the movie theaters. Yeah. Um, um, and then uh, turning our focus just from relationships to the role of women in movies, um, which we uh, which we also talked about, like, if you're introducing a woman character into your movie, make sure that she is a character and not just a sign pointing to the thing that the protagonist must do. Yes. That, that, and I think that's true for all characters, but especially when it's marginalized characters. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's true for gay characters, for black characters, for, for any character, but especially for women characters, because that's where we see it happen all the time. And it's because, you know, the, these movies reflect that horrible part of culture, but that's not, you know, when, when someone's referred to as, you know, Mrs. Joe Smith, it's because the idea is that she exists to be the support to him. And that's just one more way these things played out. So, guys, we talked on a whole bunch of, of important topics, some pretty difficult ones. We probably said some things that you think are great, but probably we especially said some things you really disagree with. Let us know. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter on super, at Superhero Ethics. Uh, on Facebook, we have both a page and a group. Uh, we have an email, superheroethics at gmail.com. Uh, any of those ways, you can let us know. You can either tell us, hey, please read this on the air. Or just, hey, here's a thought I want to share with you, but, you know, you want to keep it kind of uh, private, or you want to just start a discussion on a Facebook thread. Uh, we'll respond, but also a lot of our other fans have, have been responding as well. Um, so that's where you can find all of us. Uh, for you two guys, what are, what are good ways that uh, people want to write in or contact you directly, or just find some more of the things you're doing? Morgan, especially as our guest, what are ways people can uh, keep track of you? All right, so I am on Twitter, at MTG Valkyrie. I'm currently on a Twitter hiatus, but that'll probably end eventually. You can find me there. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Morgan Tries Insta, M-O-R-G-A-N-T-R-I-E-S-I-N-S-T-A. Uh, you can DM me there, comment on my pictures, and I'll, I'll chat you up. Uh, as always, you can find me on Twitter at bots, are people too, B-O-T-S-R-P-E-O-P-L-E-C-O-O. You can also find me on Facebook. Uh, I usually don't accept requests from people I don't recognize, and in order to recognize you, I have to see you in person. But if you want to, you know, reply to a thing or send me a thing on Twitter, I'm happy to engage in a conversation there. Um, and I'm Cape Ethicist. You can find me there, and all of those names will be on our podcast, uh, on the show notes, and on the webpage. You can find all those things written there. Um, so thank you guys both for being great hosts. Thank you guys all our fans. Um, also, if you want to help continue supporting the podcast, we do have a Patreon. 
It is just superhero ethics at patreon.com. Again, the link is on the website. It's a great way to help support what we do, uh, and, and as well as there's a lot of great swag you can get through that. Uh, you can get um, have access to help you know um, uh, some different different materials we make, but also to kind of different recordings of the show and stuff like that. All that's available on Patreon. We also do also have a website where you can buy um, merch for the podcast, including uh, t-shirts, mouse pads, uh, um, play mats if you play Magic or Pokemon or other card games like that, anything like that. So on behalf of all three of us, uh, thank you guys all for uh, being great listeners. We look forward to hearing from you. And now we're just about to our destination. So instead of talking about ethics, it's time for us to be doing ethical things. Thank you and goodbye.